At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Commonwealth Matters. Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson, Executive Director of the Commonwealth Policy Center, and the program is coming from Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm honored to have special guest Denny Burke with me. Denny, welcome to the program. Hey, uh, you were at a conference we did uh, a few weeks back in Somerset. It was the Christianity and Culture Conference, and we've been doing these all across the state uh, going back to the spring. But you uh, led a segment that we did not do at the other conferences, and it was a biblical view on transgenderism. And one reason why we didn't uh, do that probably is because we couldn't secure you as a speaker. I'm not sure. But it's a tough topic isn't it? And yet it's an issue that is front and center in the news. It's something that many parents are thinking through as their schools are uh, addressing it, and in some cases crafting policies for transgender students. But, you know, one of the—you said several fascinating things uh, at the conference, um, but—and that's why I wanted to have you on the the program to share it with a wider audience. audience. But Man, it's great to. It is well, great thanks, to have you. and I'm happy to dive right into this. It is a tough issue because you know, for I don't know, time immemorial, most people have just assumed a difference between male and female that was natural and that was tied to biology. All that has come into question, though, here in the late modern West, and now certainly in American culture. Um, that stuff is thrown into disarray, and so now there's a lot of questions about it, and things that people used to assume now have to be explained and defended. They do, and you explain them very well, but before we go into that, at what point did we enter the transgender moment? Is Because one thing you said is that the church has been caught flat-footed, and Christians have not really thought through this issue carefully, but was there one point when we took that step into believing that gender is malleable and um, it's okay for a biological male who identifies psychologically as a female and for them to um, live in that role. Is there a certain point that that happened where we jumped over to that kind of thinking? I think so. Now, you have to remember, we've been slow walking towards this for a long time. Um, but if you'll, you know, everybody knows the LGBTQ alphabet soup at this point. And probably for the first, I don't know, 40 or 50 years, the main focus of the gay rights movement has been on the LG and the B, the lesbian, gay, and bisexual. And that culminated in 2015 in a Supreme Court decision, uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, which granted a right of gay marriage. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a real right, but it's now it's, you know, the Supreme Court says so, so here we are. But that was a major achievement in, in the gay rights movement. And it was really interesting because that happened in 2015, and it was like right then, immediately, they turned the page from LG and B to T, to, to transgenderism. And you saw a, a sustained focus publicly now on this issue. 
Now, I say we've been slow walked to this because it's not like transgenderism wasn't an issue before 2015. But you'll remember in the year that Obergefell came out was the same year that we saw uh, Caitlyn Jenner's uh, major transformation, which captured the nation's country and sort of vaulted this into the public consciousness in a way that people weren't paying attention to it uh, previously. Even in Christianity Today, they did a whole cover story on this after the, the Caitlyn Jenner reveal. So now it's on the front page, uh, you know, the front burner of everybody in the nation. And what's fascinating was how quickly this happened because, you know, I wrote a, a book on sexual ethics in 2013. And at the time, I thought, well, you know, I knew what transgenderism was. And, um, but, but I thought, you know, this was not really something that was major enough to include in the book. And by 2015, it was pretty clear, you know, that would have, I should have put something in the book. So uh, just the, the public attention on this got majorly refocused, I think, after 2015. Uh, and now, uh, according to one author, Abigail Schreier came up with a book recently about the transgender craze, uh, hot book. It's, uh, and she addresses what's happening in the schools where young middle school and junior high and high school girls are identifying with the opposite uh, gender, opposite sex. And uh, so, yeah, we in six years, six short years, Denny, we have seen this transition, uh, which makes me wonder, where does it stop? Now, that's getting a little bit downstream, but I would not have guessed six years ago that we'd be right now where in the public schools. Uh, in fact, this issue is personal because I have a, a sophomore niece who uh, last semester, last year, a boy began identifying as a girl, and he was allowed by the administration to use the girls' restrooms. Well, now he wants to use the girls' locker rooms. He hasn't said anything about the girls' sports teams, but that's a problem. My sister and brother-in-law have approached the administration. They've spoken to the school board, expressing their concerns for my niece's safety, their daughter's safety, and a lot of other parents are concerned as well. Um, I don't think we expected to be here just six years ago, but, but here we are. Then I think the place to go is uh, the very first book in the Bible that you have open right there. What, is, what does God's Word say about gender and sex? Well, the first thing I would want to point out to listeners is that just about everybody on all sides of this agrees that there's a distinction between male and female. Um, you can see that even with people who are identifying as a, you know, a, a gender a, a opposite of what they were born as. Everybody would recognize some kind of social distinction between male and female. The question is, is what's the basis of the distinction? How do we define what that distinction is? And so what I try to share with people, and I'm trying to just scream this from the rooftops, especially for believers, especially for Christians, is that God's Word speaks to this very directly. And there, there are three things that um, the Bible teaches about the distinction between male and female. Uh, the first one is that the distinction between male and female is biological. The second one is that it's social. And then the third one is that it's good. Now, you're not going to be able to understand any of this if you don't understand that the distinction between male and female, first of all, is biological. That's coming right out of Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1, God says, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and all the rest. 
And then it says in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so you've got this, these categories introduced right there in Genesis 1 of male and female. And so the question then is, what, what does male and female refer to? Biblically, what is it referring to? Is it referring just to some sort of a self-concept? Is that what male and female means? So that Adam and Eve are created, and then all of a sudden their self-concept is a certain thing? Well, it turns out that's not what male and female is designating. It's not a psychological concept in, in Genesis 1, because he says to the male and female, it says in verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and all the rest. But be fruitful and, and multiply is the procreation mandate. At, right at the very beginning, God said that this male and female were to come together in a pair so that they could um, they were both image bearers. They come together in a pair and they procreate together and they create other image bearers. And God's plan is to take his image and to spread his image over the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. It's to spread God's glory over the earth. This happens through the procreation of our race, right? So be fruitful and multiply. So male and female are designating the biological realities that make procreation possible. It's not talking about a self-concept. It's not talking about brain structures or function. It's talking about the body's organization for reproduction. There's a male organization for reproduction. There's a female organization for reproduction. Those two come together and enable procreation. So everything else that we say about male and female is grounded in those truths. Now, we can see that in Scripture, but this is actually a truth that people can just see in nature. Uh, you, you don't have to be a Christian to understand that male and female bodies are designed to come together in a procreative unity. Everybody on the planet sees that. So there's a certain amount of common ground we have, even with people who don't you know, accept you know, the biblical text that I just read to you, everybody can see this biological reality. So we, we do need to be making the appeal, reminding one another you know, as evangelicals that this is where our beliefs are grounded, but we also need to be making the appeal in the public square that, look, this is something that we all can see. We can see that the difference between male and female is how the bodies are organized for reproduction. That's the whole thing. And um, all of the other differences are going to be um, coming out, out of that. So the term that comes to mind is believe the science. We've heard a lot of that, believe in science and other categories, right? But we can just believe the science here, that there is a biological difference between male and female. There's, there's sexual reproduction is organized differently in male than it is in female. And that's clear. That's an objective fact. That so, you can't undo. You, in other words, you can't, people have heard of so-called sex change surgery. You, there really is no sex change surgery because you can't change your biological sex. You can do uh, surgical rearrangements, um, but you don't become fertile as the opposite sex as a, as a consequence of those surgeries. You, just, you, you remain the same sex, but you're, you're basically just changing surface structure. But you never really change sex. 
because this is such a given, fixed thing that goes down to every single cell in our body. So there's the biological reality. There's what we can see in nature, the difference between male and female. And would you say that what you see in nature is the social difference, or is that another category altogether, the social aspect of being male or female? Right. So what you have in, in Scripture is, first of all, this biological distinction between male and female. But that biological distinction has social consequences that are naturally connected. So um, all you have to do after Genesis 1 is look at Genesis chapter 2, and you'll notice um, that this relationship between the male and the female in the first marriage comes with um, very different roles or callings, as it were. So it says in chapter in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And then you read on here and um, uh, the two come together and Adam meets this woman and this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So there's this biological reality that's now possible after the creation of Adam and Eve, but they have these, these callings assigned to them that are different based on their biological sex. And those callings are social callings. So the man, Adam, is called to be the leader and the protector and the provider in that first uh, uh, marriage. Eve is called alongside to be a helper to him. They're both equally created in the image of God, equal value and worth before God, but they have distinct social callings within the covenant of marriage. Um, She's going to be the one who's um, bearing children. Her body is designed for nurturing and for a certain kind of calling related to nurturing. The man's uh, body is different. Um, it says in Genesis chapter 3 that he is going to be working the ground. by the And this is after the curse, but um, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to work this ground. And the man's body is designed with a certain kind of strength that's different from the woman's. So you see these social callings growing out of natural differences between male and female bodies. And, of course, uh, Denny, here you're a professor at uh, Boyce College on the Southern Seminary campus. You were involved and still are involved with the Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and these are issues you've thought of more than most of us. And uh, today it doesn't seem like we think uh, very much about these important issues, and, and not to mention thinking very biblically or deeply about uh, about these issues, but we need to. We're all forced to think through these issues, aren't we? Absolutely. And, and as I said before, I, there, there was kind of a, the, the way that we all th- um, dealt with these issues in the past was that it was largely assumed. Uh, in other words, these things were so deeply ingrained in not just our culture, but all cultures, everybody sort of assumed the basic biological distinction between male and female and even across cultures, for all of their differences, you had certain social implications of that in terms of child rearing and you know, who, was, who was doing the, the major uh, economic increase in the household as a result of that. So it's not, I'm not saying that that's all been universal and identical everywhere, but there's been a lot of similarities because it's sort of sewn into the structure of, of our bodies. And that's what's been lost today. And what you're seeing in the current transgender moment is people trying to unwind what has been just 
more or less assumed heretofore. Yeah, that's very good. We're at a break, and when we come back, I'd like us to talk about how to respond. What is the biblical respond to, first of all, the person that is gender confused? And I'm trying to be sensitive because I know that this is a real struggle for people who uh, have gender confusion. I don't know of another way to put it. But then also for parents who have a young girl in a public school where the school may have adopted transgender policies. But uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Commonwealth Matters. Richard Nelson here with Denny Burke. We'll take a break, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, Richard Nelson here with the Commonwealth Policy Center. It's clear that the news media isn't always fair. In fact, there's lots of far-left bias and political gamesmanship. No surprise there. So if you're looking for perspective that's grounded in the truth of Scripture and our nation's founding principles, then get plugged into CPC's resources. Sign up for our e-newsletter at CommonwealthPolicyCenter.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Commonwealth Policy Center. And we're on Twitter at cpc for kentucky Welcome back to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson here with uh, Denny Burke, and we are talking about transgenderism and how to respond biblically to this, if I could put it this way, Denny, the transgender moment that we're in. It seems to have gone mainstream. Uh, This is something where major uh, associations, I'm thinking of the American Pediatrics Association, has endorsed gender transition for minor minor children. And I, I don't understand that. I mean, these are intelligent people, educated people, and they are saying that uh, children, uh, young children, should be able to determine their own gender. And it's some have gone, some professionals, I'm not sure within that organization, but some have gone as far as saying it hurts the child if you do not affirm the gender that they identify with. I'm having a difficult time getting my mind around that. But uh, that's where we are uh, in the culture. And, and I need to temper. And I, this is just, I'm, I'm going to be very transparent. I'm trying to temper my spirit because I get angry, especially when it comes to children. This is a, this is a serious decision. And this is something that's life-changing. And when you undergo hormone therapy at a young age or a gender reassignment surgery, which is the politically correct term, I think there's other ways you could look at it. Some have called it mutilation, gender mutil- uh, genital mutilation. You can't go back when you've made these decisions. And um, Denny, how how do I respond as a Christian, a follower of Jesus? I want to respond biblically to the gender-confused person, whether it's a minor or an adult. Where do I start with that? You mentioned uh, Abigail Schreier's book at the beginning of this. Um, She wrote a book called Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. And um, this is just one facet of it. But um, there has been a dramatic increase in cases amongst um, teenage girls now identifying as transgender. Now, in the past, so let's say before 2015, uh, before the 2010s, um, when you had children dealing with gender confusion, it was mainly males. And um, in, in, in fact, it was, um, I don't remember the exact uh, percentages on it, but it was a primarily a thing that was happening in young males. And for those who were expressing issues with gender confusion, they usually resolved without intervention uh, after they hit puberty. So, and the numbers are very, are very based on what study you're looking at, but anywhere from 80 to 90% of these gender-confused kids, by the time they hit puberty, it would just resolve without any intervention. 
And so what's scary today is that you've now got the medical associations, I think driven by propaganda, not by science, recommending all of these ways to treat children who are gender confused. And what they're doing is instead of just waiting for puberty, they're making interventions even before that. And they're putting children on medicines that block their puberty from happening because once you go through puberty, it becomes more difficult to do more permanent changes surgically later. And so they just have them delay their puberty all the way up until when they're an adult. And then sometimes they put them on cross-sex hormones. And so they begin transitioning and making these permanent physical changes. So even before anybody has ever done any surgery, a lot of these um, children are completely sterilized for the rest of their life because of the, the hormone blockers and, and all the rest. But here's the thing. This was primarily something that was happening with male children previously, but we've seen this dramatic increase in the last 10 years of this happening with female children. And what um, Abigail Schreier has chronicled, and I think she's correct, is that we have a social contagion going on. Now, because the culture has changed and because this propaganda has infused the culture, whereas previously you would have um, young girls who had uh, maybe depression or problems, now they're sort of pathologizing all of that as gender confusion. And instead of just being sad with my body, maybe it's I'm sad with my body because I'm supposed to be a boy. So it's a social contagion that's happening now, and you have all of these young women who are beginning to transition and making these permanent changes to their bodies. I'll never forget, I think it was 2017, National Geographic did an entire issue on the transgender moment that we're in And I opened up to the cover story, and one of the big glossy pictures that they had in there was a picture of a young boy standing there with his shirt off holding a skateboard. Then you look closer at the caption, and you find out um, that it's not a young boy. And if you look closer at the picture, there are two scars on the the boy's chest because this was actually a 14-year-old girl who had undergone a double mastectomy. So a minor child doing, and you can't undo a double mastectomy. I mean, that's over. And so it's permanent destructive change to this young girl's body. And now what, what, what was outrageous when you thought about it was I realized I'm not looking at a young boy holding a skateboard. I'm looking at a surgically mutilated adolescent young girl who is showing her naked body in the pages of National Geographic. And we're supposed to think that this is normal and something to be celebrated. It's just not. It goes against nature and it goes against God's design. I've heard somebody said it before that it is defiling the image of God in mankind, male or female, when you mutilate perfectly healthy body parts to, because you identify with the opposite gender, that it's, uh, it's, it's defiling what God has created. He created it good. He, in what you just read in Genesis 1, it was good when he created male and female in his image. And this is part of defiling that image. Maleness is good. It's inherently good because God created it. Femaleness is inherently good because God created it. And there's a purpose behind that, isn't there? So I want to go back to how, where I started out with this, because I do get frustrated, Danny, just being very transparent, just to the case of the young 14-year-old girl who had gender mutilation surgery, as Christians, shouldn't we be advocating on their behalf? Shouldn't we stand in the gap for them? 
perhaps working for policies that would prevent that from happening? Yeah. So I, let me say just a couple of things. Just first of all, just to every Christian listener that's participating in this program right now, if you meet somebody or, or know somebody who's dealing with gender confusion, by all means, you need to have compassion. You need to listen. You need to talk to them, uh, weep with them. Um, in other words, you want to just have normal Christian love and compassion for somebody. But the key question that you're going to have to face before that moment is to understand that they're going to need help. And if you have the privilege of being able to talk to somebody or counsel somebody in that situation, you have to have the moral clarity to understand that what's good for them is what's in accordance with God's design. Um, and so, so sometimes people can have feelings that go against their own, their own good. So you would never want to counsel or advise someone to embrace a gender, gender identity at odds with their bodily identity. So you don't want to take steps to conform a healthy body to a gender-confused mind. Um, if anything, you want to take the healthy body and conform the mind to, to, to that. Uh, you want to bring those things into alignment in a way that it's non-destructive of the body. So that's the first thing I want to say is have compassion and have moral clarity to speak into specific personal situations. I do think, though, Christians need to have a public consciousness on these things, and we, we need to support policies and initiatives that affirm what's good for people because good policy is always going to be based on what's good for uh, human flourishing. And if you're embracing policies that are encouraging or mandating the destruction of healthy human bodies, that's bad policy. Danny, we've got just a couple minutes. Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, how can the church influence this issue? What are a few things that maybe a pastor or um, leaders in the church can do to address this issue? Because it's coming. This issue's coming, whether or not you see it now, it's coming either to your public school, your community, maybe your church. What can church? Well, I would, I would just say, first of all, the church leaders, pastors in particular, you're going to have to talk about this stuff. Um, you know, the, the Bible should set your agenda for your preaching and for your instruction, but you're going to have to talk about this stuff. You're going to have to take your people back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and talk about some very basic things. Because what was assumed is now being contested, which means we have to articulate a defense, which means you've got to bring together what the Bible is saying about these things in a, into a coherent whole so your people can understand this. So pastors are going to have to coach their, themselves up, then they're going to have to coach their people up, which means you're going to have to talk about it. To do that, you're going to have to read. You're going to have to read your Bible first, but you're also going to need to read about the issue. Uh, one of the first books I would recommend uh, for folks to read is Ryan Anderson's book. It's kind of a, a memorable title, but he, he, he wrote a book called When Harry Became Sally. Now, Ryan Anderson is a Roman Catholic, but he didn't write a religious book. He just wrote a book that's on the facts of tra transgenderism and gender dysphoria and what transitioning looks like and how it's harmful to people. If you want to get read up on what all the relevant issues are, just the facts of the matter, you'll have to take a look at that book.